This is Guns and Butter. You know, if you if you look at the black budget being financed out of HUD, one of my theories was it was really being managed from the National Security Council. And, uh, you know, so I started to get involved for a variety of reasons, not just this and 9-11. And Kyle Hentz from 9-11 would invite me to speak on 9-11 in Washington. And every time I made an appointment to speak, the judge would announce a hearing at that time. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 1. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dillon Reed and Company, Incorporated, Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, President of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Today we discuss the crisis in the financial system, fraud at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, collateral fraud, and a two-tiered economic system. Catherine Austin Fitz, welcome. It's great to be back, Bonnie. Oh, Catherine, it's great to have you right here in Berkeley in person. I know, in the studio, it's fabulous. In an article on Bloomberg, October 18th, entitled, B of A said to split regulators on moving Merrill, Merrill derivatives to bank unit, the Federal Reserve has allowed the Bank of America holding company, BAC, to transfer $75 trillion of derivatives from its Merrill Lynch affiliate to the Bank of America, putting the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, on the hook to cover depositors' losses in case of bank failure. It seems that the FDIC does not agree that this transfer should have taken place. Bank of America has over $1 trillion in deposits. Could these deposits be wiped out by their derivative exposure? I think in theory, yes, if the FDIC doesn't uh, doesn't basically make good on their deposit insurance. And I think the question is not will it wipe out uh, the B of A deposits in the event of a B of A uh, bankruptcy or default. The question is will it wipe out the FDIC? Because <laughs> what, you're, what you're seeing is the FDIC guarantee being put behind the liquidity of those derivatives. And I'm assuming if the Federal Reserve did this, and we don't know the the whys and wherefores, but if they did this, it's because they were concerned about the liquidity of that of this book, and it's a way of saying to the marketplace, this book is strong and can maintain its contracts. Um, but what it does mean, Bonnie, is that you've you've basically got the federal credit now financing and funding the most speculative positions on the planet. Um, and and this gets back to the whole question of what what didn't get done in the Dodd Frank bill, which is why are we giving government guarantees to speculative investment activity? Now I'm assuming if the Fed did it, it was because they were afraid it could literally take the economy down. 
Um, but, but what we're watching throughout society is a class society that's divided between the people who can use the federal credit to do almost anything and people who have to earn credit in the marketplace the old-fashioned way. And, and it's one of the reasons that we're centralizing the economy because you have insiders being able to do, you know, unbelievable things with the federal credit. And one of the reasons we got there is by chipping away at the historical rules that said if you got depositor credit, you only could do certain things with it. You certainly couldn't engage in wildly speculative activity, let alone derivatives. But here we are. Right. Is there $75 trillion in the world? Um, there's certainly $75 trillion of value in the world. When you look at the way derivatives price, um, the notational value can be much higher than the present value of the position. So you get these numbers that look far greater. You know, you get something that's worth a dollar and its notational value is $25 or many multiples of its value. Um, there's there's a tremendous amount of value in the world. And one of the problems is we're basically re-engineering that value over time to be used in certain ways through the the derivatives market. It's a, it's a way for insiders literally to rig forward how the world's going to be managed. You know, you lock in the future and then everybody has to go there because otherwise it'll crash the global financial system. Now, are these derivatives mainly credit default swaps, that is, insurance on derivative bets made by other financial institutions, many of which are European banks? There, there, there are many different kinds of, of derivatives. One kind is the credit default swap, which is, is I do a transaction with another party, but I don't want to accept their credit, so I go out and I get insurance. Um, and, and we saw that type of derivative be a very important part when the when the housing bubble crashed because so many players had bought credit default uh, insurance essentially from AIG and AIG was not able to stand by it and that's when the government interceded. The biggest use of um, of derivatives is also interest rate swaps. So um, one of the reasons we see interest rates low and not going up in situations where you think there might is there's such enormous positions being used to swap interest rates out in the future to keep interest rates down. A variety of us believe that that's being engineered by the central banks and government because it's such a big position and there's really, you know, other than government and the central banks, there's nobody on the other side. So I would say credit default and interest rate swaps are the two primary kinds. Bank of America's credit rating was downgraded a month ago. Do you think this is significant? Um, y yes, I think it's significant. Um, I think Bank of America is having a variety of problems. Um, and I think, you know, what we're watching, among other things, is, is the banks, both in Europe and the United States, struggling through huge debt positions that were never economic to begin with. So that was a matter of policy. We decided to make a whole lot of loans, both for government and on mortgages and consumers, that was essentially fraudulent inducement. So I think that's number one. Number two, though, I think the government has made a command decision, and I should really say the central banks and the government, to put, to put the banks in a box. Um, for the last 20 years, we financed the federal government with more and more debt being sold to the pension funds, more and more debt being sold to China. And I think we're now coming into a period when the banks are going to be the new China. So the banks are going to be forced to 
um, raise deposits short and lend long to government and, and be the intermediary that's really reengineering how the sovereign government system works. So I think the banks are kind of being put in a box. And Bank of America, you know, if anybody in the United States right now is number one on the hit list. What do you mean the hit list? Who's hit list? Um, the hit list on a variety of, of players. Um, um, but I would say first and foremost, the regulators. I think the regulators are, uh, you know, we have excess capacity in the banking system. And when B of A bought Merrill Lynch, they took on a huge amount of contingent liabilities and, and, and legal liabilities. And I think they're having to slug their way through that. And you also see B of A in California. California has the most underwater mortgages. And because it's the biggest real estate market, um, big positions to work through. So I think B of A is managing a huge amount of, of liabilities and legal liabilities within the system. Now, you mentioned regulators. Is the U.S. government uh, really regulating anything? It seems to me from what I've been reading lately, they haven't been doing much regulating. Oh, I think – well, that's because I think the regulation is political. You know, we have an official reality, and our theory is that regulators are supposed to implement that official reality. And because they're not implementing that official reality, we say they're not regulating. <laughs> And instead, if you look at regulation as a political force to be used to get the system where it's really wanted to go, I think they are doing that very well. So I do think they're they're constructing uh, a structure where the banks will be the new Chinas, if you will. The banks will really um, – remember, because the, the, the government needs the banks to keep organizing and managing the dollar system and the government financing. And they're putting more and more pressure on the banks to do it exactly as they wish. So, you know, you sort of have a little power struggle. And I think the regulators are doing that. Well, now, when you say that the banks would become the new China, are you implying that the banks have gotten the money out of the government so that they're in a position to lend to the government? Sure. Let me give you an example. Um, when I left the Bush administration in 1991, um, you know, we had the crash – the crash of the last housing bubble. And um, and what happened was you had a series of banks, including Citigroup at the time, who was underwater. So they had negative equity. And the question was, would the regulators shut them down? And instead, what Alan Greenspan did at the time was he ran a sharply upward sloping yield curve, which means you could borrow short or raise deposits as a bank would CDs. And this gets back to the use of the federal credit. So so he could raise your CD or my CD at, let's say at the time, X percent, and then proceed to take that money and buy a treasury security at, you know, five and a half percent plus of what he was paying to take the thing. And so you could run just a matched, you know, a matched book and, and make a fortune. You know, so for every $100 billion, you made $5.5 billion of pure profit. And if you levered it, it was even more. And if you added derivatives, it was even more. And, you know, it was a money-making machine. Now, here's the interesting thing. If the federal government's going to finance itself, why does it need to pay the bank $5.5 billion on every $100 billion to do that? Why can't – I mean, if eBay lets us go directly to each other, why can't the Treasury just create an eBay and instead of using the bank as an intermediary, just raise deposits directly from citizens, right? Right. Right. Why can't it? Well, because that game, that ballooning of the bank's balance sheet provides it with tons and tons of credit. 
Okay. And, and it's that ballooning of the balance sheet that creates more and more money that allows it to borrow more and more money. Now, it debases our savings. If you look at any picture of the, you know, the U.S. dollar, what it shows is since the creation of the Federal Reserve System, American savers have lost uh, one estimate by the American Institute for Economic Research in Massachusetts is as of five years ago, we'd lost $17 trillion through debasement. Okay, because what you're doing is you're ballooning the federal credit in certain places and allowing that money to be used in certain ways, you know, directed politically. And this gets back to are we going to allocate our credit as a society according to some criteria related to economic performance, which most you know markets will do reasonably well? Or are we going to direct it politically? And that's why, you know, among my group, there, there, there are those of us among us who say the Soviet Union won the Cold War <laughs> because if you look at our society, both government spending and government credit, it's unbelievably, um, unbelievably governmentized. OK. And le- let me step back and give you an example because it's one of the reasons that we're being overwhelmed with complex rules, Bonnie. I mean, we're being regulated <laughs> to the ground. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. When I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, um, I got to HUD and I couldn't figure out why things were so complicated. And then it took me a long time, you know, why does gridlock keep happening? And finally, I figured it out. At the time, we were um, originating $5 billion of mortgage insurance a year for apartment buildings, so mortgages on apartment buildings. And um, we had about $25 billion of demand for that $5 billion. And the reason was we were charging way below market. If we had charged a mortgage insurance premium related to market, we would have had $5 billion of demand for $5 billion of mortgage. So so I said, okay, well, um, if you have $25 billion of demand at a cheaper price, don't you just set rules of, you know, who you want to get it? So all pink apartment buildings west of the Mississippi get first crack and second crack go to polka dot apartment buildings, you know, north of Boston. And, you know, whatever your criteria is, you set a criteria and you're clear. And then, you know, $5 billion will get that. And what I discovered was um, if, you, if you had that clear criteria, the problem was the criteria wasn't to the people who are going to donate the most money to the president's reelection campaign. See what I mean? So so we had the official reality criteria and then everything would come in and you made the underwriting process unbelievably complicated. So everything would gridlock and then the right lawyers would just channel the right applications through so that the five billion who are going to contribute to the reelection campaign were the ones who got it. Okay. So complexity <laughs> served a purpose. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, let me step back and go back to the B of A Merrill Lynch story or the enforcement story. We're, we're just printing massive amounts of unbelievably low-priced, cheap, federal credit into a variety of sort of insiders. And then we create millions and millions of complex rules so that we can sort of allocate that cheap credit because it's way below any kind of market price. And what we do in those rules is we make sure that, you know, the insiders get it and the outsiders get regulated or enforced to death. 
It's funny. I don't know if you've read um, Matt Taibbi's book, Giftopia. He does a wonderful job of going into how we have two groups of, of you know, sort of two classes of society, and one is drowning in rules, and the other is, you know, above the law. And every time the above the law people offend everybody else because they're above the law, you know, the the political process is, oh, we'll pass more rules, you know, and, and the guys who are being, you know, the outsiders say, yeah, more rules. But the problem is those rules only, you know, come back and get burdened to the to the the first class doesn't have to obey the, the rules. So um, what, what we're watching throughout society is the is the debasement of everything economic from this process of cheap federal credit and this two-class society, one that has, you know, doesn't have to obey the rules or can afford to spend a fortune, you know, playing the rules. And then the rest of us who are just dying in a small business, most small business is just drowning and overwhelmed by these rules. The food safety rules are being used to destroy small farms, destroy small food businesses, on and on and on. So, but it's a, you know, it's a two-tier society and it's a highly complicated game. There was a segment on the BBC that went viral, an interview with a trader named <laughs> Alessio Rastani. Yes, yeah, very funny. Uh, they were asking him about the Eurozone rescue plan. He said, get prepared. The governments don't rule the world. Goldman Sachs rules the world. Goldman Sachs doesn't care about this rescue plan. All the traders care about is making money, not how all of this is going to sort itself out. He said that in less than 12 months, the savings of millions of people are going to vanish. Do you agree with his assessment? Um, I, You know, I think that we are in an unbelievably volatile environment. And I believe the chances of a collapse scenario of the kind that you would think he was talking about are are relatively small. It's feasible, but I think it's relatively small. I do think the possibility of going through another 2008 kind of scenario is reasonably good, and and the possibility of tremendous volatility is reasonably good. I just finished writing a new article. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called the William Defender for the Financial Hitman of Student Loans, and that's a perfect example where Peter Drucker once said that the greatest um, governmental investment we ever made was in the GI Bill because a massive investment in human and intellectual capital. And um, and if you look at the impact that the GI uh, Bill had on the sort of the population and therefore on the health of the economy, it was tremendous. Well, what was our equivalent of the GI Bill? We did the reverse. We basically took all the young people all our potential innovators, all our potential human intellectual capital, and we made sure that unless they were very wealthy, by the time they got out of college, they were completely locked into a position of indebtedness, which in many cases could never be paid off because the the thing that's interesting about it was the the person that I mentioned, the financial hitman of student loan, was somebody who'd been on my board at Hamilton. And so there was nothing he didn't know about the fact that we were sending all the jobs abroad and we needed to help people find new ways of creating income because otherwise their incomes were going to plummet. So um, 
he was on the board of Sally May and was part of the group when all the changes were made, further locking in sort of this model that would enable people to make money on students not being able to pay back their student loan. So literally you're creating a corporate model where people could make more money from students failing and not being able to pay back their student loans than being able to pay them back when they knew that many would never be able to pay it back because we were shipping the jobs abroad. So it's the worst form of fraudulent inducement. Very, very ugly. Well, you know, it's funny. I said to somebody, I I worked with a, a wonderful person who helped me with the research, and I said, you know, I thought I'd seen the worst that financial fraud can do. I, I thought I'd seen the worst, you know, including derivatives sort of rigging us into a negative future. But this is the worst thing I've ever seen because when you destroy the ability of young people to build the future and to innovate, you destroy the future itself. You destroy the future itself, not just their future, but our future, our whole society's future. It was like, why don't we just get together as a tribe and commit suicide? It's like those, you know, everybody taking acid and dying. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I couldn't believe that a human being that I used to think of as someone that I respected would, would even do that. It's kind of like a... You know, we've all lost our minds. Now, how do they make money on uh, student loans defaulting? Well, because you you set it up so that if there's, uh, you know, different kinds of technical defaults or other problems that you can raise the rates or raise the fees. And on student student loans, they tightened up the provisions that mean you can't extinguish them in bankruptcy. That's right. Right. So here you have somebody who is struggling and can't pay back their student loan. And so the, the amount that they owe back, the more they can't pay it back, the more it goes up. So you have, you know, you, you have the ability to keep them in the box and just keep charging more and more money. Well, right. Then, they, then they've got that uh, noose around their neck for the rest of their life. Right. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. It's, it's a combination of fraudulent inducement and predatory lending and the inability to extinguish it in, in bankruptcy. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. We have two pieces... If you go to my homepage at Solari.com, we have two pieces. One is a review of a wonderful book by an engineer student who went to Caltech and got into the student loan trap and has written one of the best books on sort of the student loan scam. So we write a review of that and go through some of the more detailed provisions. And then I wrote this other one called William Defender for the financial hitmen of student loans. And that was because I wanted to I wanted to take the problem and make it intimate because I had been on the board of, of Sally Mae. And then after I left, Bill, who had been on my board, joined the board of Sally Mae. And a lot of the people at Sally Mae were people I had known as a board member. So I'm looking at this fraud, and these are people – these aren't strangers. These are people I knew, including people I liked and respected. So part of it is an exploration of, you know, what what happened? It was very – just as a personal search for me – I, you know, I was in – I left the Bush administration, Bonnie, and I came out and I said, you know, the fascists are going to kill us all because one of the things I had seen in the Bush administration, I had literally seen a combination of the power that technology was giving to what I now call the breakaway civilization. And and I saw the breakaway civilization operate. I, there was one very famous story where I was in a meeting with the secretary of HUD and he he was quite upset that day, quite frustrated. And and um, it was almost a manic episode. And one of the regional, we were meeting with all the regional administrators from around the country. And one of the regional administrators, uh, he was yelling at him because he'd done something. In fact, it was the California regional administrator. It's always California, which is the outlier. So uh, 
he said, uh, you know, but Mr. Secretary, I had to do it. It was the law. And the secretary went nuts. He just turned bright red. He said, the law, the law, I'm above the law. I don't have to obey the law. I report to a higher moral authority. You know, it's like the veil opened and you were in the eyes wide shut world. You realized they they really didn't think they had to obey the law. I'll I'll never forget. There was another meeting where um, uh, the secretary was promoting something which really was illegal. And I was trying to I was trying to stop it because it was really outside of the Constitution. And um, so he said to the general counsel, well, can we do it? And the general counsel said, uh, he used the F word. He said, he said, F them. Uh, he said, so what if it's against, the, you know, if it's a violation of the law by the time they sue in court and win, we'll be gone. You know, there was no government was just a power to be used to reengineer things in the way they wanted. Have you ever seen Charlie Ferguson's movie, No End in Sight? About no. the Iraq. Oh, I recommend it. But, it, you know, it's the same kind of sort of demonic lawlessness. Anyway, so I came out of the Bush administration. I said, well, we need a plan. And one of the things I had discovered was the power of the Internet and technology to so en- enhance the learning speeds in a community and between communities that I said, you know, we don't have to go through these central systems. We can go direct. So we can, just as we could do an eBay on the asset side of the balance sheet, we could do an eBay for equity or for loans or, you know. And, um, you know, there's a way that we can network with this technology. We don't need to be a captive of Wall Street or Washington. And so I created Hamilton Securities Group. And, uh, you know, for for a couple of years, it was that bright, shining moment when you thought anything was possible. And one of the things we did was we created a software tool called Community Wizard. And the idea of Community Wizard was that um, uh, if you you go and you study how we've organized government and governance in the United States, one of the things you find is we vote for political representation. So we vote for a senator, we vote for a congressperson, we vote for a governor, but we don't have an annual financial statement that shows us what happened to our money. So if I buy a corporate stock, by law, I'm required to get an annual report and their quarterly reports that say, here's what we're doing with your money and here's how we're doing. But we don't get the equivalent for government. Now, when you realize with all the software tools and what software can do, why not? You know, so so if I'm going to vote for my congressperson, I need to see a sources and uses contiguous to the area of political representation on what's going on with the money. And one of the things I discovered when I worked in the Bush administration is if every voter had that, 90% of this fraud would just stop. <laughs> it's amazing. Because there would be transparency. Because when I go in and I look at the look at the budget or the financial reports of the U.S. government, they say, here's what's going on in transportation everywhere. Here's what's going on in housing everywhere. But they don't say, here's what's going on in your congressional district. Right. It's it's function based, not place based. Now, with relational databases, which I discovered in 1991, you know, there's no reason why it can't be both. Why you can sort back and forth, and you know, because the software can do it all. And one of the things I discovered when I was Assistant Secretary of Housing, I would get these lists of foreclosures, and then when I would go fly someplace, I'd I say, "Oh, we have ten foreclosures on this block," and you'd fly there, and it was like an empty lot. <laughs> No houses there. No houses there. And that's that's when I realized, you know, if everybody could get this data, including with geographical information software, because most of us are graphical, we don't relate to text, 
you know, a lot of this fraud could stop because the the best internal financial control is a citizen watching the money in the world that they drive around and know. Because that's how a lot of the waste. And if you look at the collateral fraud, we used to have we used to have homes. Well, I'll tell you the funny story. When uh, and this happened in both the Bush administration and then my company Hamilton was hired back in on competitive bid to serve as financial advisor to HUD during the Clinton administration. So I dealt with it in both Republican and Democrat. Um, we found places, Bonnie, um, New Orleans was one, where um, the government was spending $250,000 per unit to build or rehab apartments, and 50000 would buy and rehab a single-family home in the same four-block area. Wow. So I went to see the woman who was the assistant to the person running that program, and I said, Mindy, we could we could have four or five homes for the price of one. And she turned bright red and said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? <laughs> you know, and this relates to everyone because we've had 50, 60 years of fees for our friends. So um, there's there's tremendous opportunity I found through Community Wizard to re-optimize government money. And it gets back to where we started about this two-class. So much money is being spent, Bonnie, to prop up corporate stocks and to prop up insiders and then to pay everybody else to shut up and go along with it. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show, Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You've been talking about Hamilton Securities, the company that you started. Uh-huh. What happened there? That <laughs> uh <laughs> I mean that that says a lot about what happened to you and that company and then the lawsuit that you had to bring. Well, we it's a you know, it's one of these long shaggy dog stories. I, I once had a woman introduce me at a wonderful conference. She said, Who here has seen the movie Enemy of the State? Have you seen Enemy oh, of the State? Oh, sure. I love it. And and she said, This woman played Will Smith in real life. <laughs> and it's so funny because when the movie starts out, um uh when the movie starts out, uh it opens up and Will Smith's office, his law office is a block from where my it was right next door, it's right across the street. It was it was funny that the guy who directed uh Enemy of the State at one point told somebody, you know, thank her for just keeping this movie on the front of everybody's attention. <laughs> no, it's a great movie. Oh, it is it's a great movie. And I hate to say it, it's more true than you might think, although Will Smith managed to, you know, get it all figured out in about six days and it took me twelve years. <laughs> Anyway, but um, what happened was uh, we were doing a series of things which, if they were successful, would really shift the model, the economic model. So we were promoting things that decentralized. They decentralized knowledge. They decentralized technology. They decentralized the economic activity. So one of the things we were working on is community venture funds. Think of it as like a little mutual fund for your community. And what I was very interested in doing, when I worked in the administration, for the first 30 days, Bonnie, I had the most amazing feeling of free-floating anxiety. I'm a very intuitive person. And the home builders would come in and the realtors would come in and they're all lobbing me for stuff. And I was feeling more and more uncomfortable and more and more uncomfortable. I couldn't tell why. And finally, I realized they were all lobbying me for something that would make their stocks go up. But their stocks were not organized on a place-based basis. So it was going to make their corporate stocks go up, but it was going to hurt the value of places. 
So I came up with an, a name because everybody had the Dow Jones Index or the S&P 500, but nobody had a simple, understandable description of community well-being. So that's where I came up with the Popsicle Index. Oh, okay? right, right. So the Popsicle Index is the percent of people who believe a child can leave their home, go to the nearest place to buy a Popsicle, and come home alone safely. Now, when I was a little girl growing up, I grew up in a very modest neighborhood in West Philadelphia, but the Popsicle Index was very high. It was unthinkable a child couldn't go up to Spruce Street, play the pins, buy a Popsicle, and come home alone safely. So I started to say, okay, well, all these guys want the Dow Jones to go up. But there's no constituency for the Popsicle Index. And I realized um, a second thing happened was my staff, it was at the end of the last housing bubble bust in 89, and my staff brought in a list of foreclosures. We had 50,000 foreclosed homes at that time and massive defaulted mortgages. And um, and there was this one town in New Mexico where 70% of the mortgages were in default and owned by Freddie Fannie and FHA. Wow. And I said, well, that town, we don't need to aggressively service. That town needs to reinvent itself. Why don't you have the town buy the mortgages? And they said, well, the town doesn't have any money. I said, I'm from Wall Street. We would buy the world without any money. We just create an entity and issue shares. So I said, tell the town to create a trust or a REIT or whatever the structure should be, and we'll swap the mortgages for the stock. And they looked at me like I was nuts. But that's when I realized, oh, we need to create the equivalent of a venture fund or a mutual fund for a neighborhood because if everybody in a neighborhood who wants to own stock and that stock can finance the businesses and real estate in that place, then, you know, the higher the popsicle index, the more money they make. So we'll get the financial system organized so they can make money not just on functional enterprises going up but on places going up. And so we were prototyping community venture funds. And that's when I discovered that, you know, if small business has access to the capital within that place, then that capital won't go to Wall Street. Wall Street has a problem with it. You know, they, they were centralizing and so small businesses were failing and they were financing franchises to come in and take over the market. And so you literally had a hit on small business going on. And and what I was doing was basically reversing the financial flows that were making that hit financially feasible. Because imagine if all the small businesses in a place, and, and it would never be all, but if some of the small businesses in a place are financed through a vehicle where in my IRA or 401k, I can buy that vehicle. And then the more I shop locally, the more money I make in my 401k or IRA. Well, that changes the politics, okay? And it also changes the the sort of the politics of government money because all of a sudden the local players have mechanisms to start to compete for money. Uh, I'll give you an example. And this was one of the problems with Community Wizard. I have rarely seen a community where the federal government wasn't paying somebody 100 to $150 an hour to do something that somebody in that community would love to do for 20 to $25. So have you ever heard my food stamp example? No. Okay. In 30-plus states, I think it's 37 states, including Tennessee, if you get food stamps and you call in on the hotline, you don't get somebody in Tennessee or somebody in the United States. You get somebody in India working for J.P. Morgan Chase. Oh, that's right. Okay, so what that means is I'm paying somebody – money to not work in the United States. And I'm also paying somebody in India to do a job that that person could do. Right. Now, that's paying twice. 
That's right. That's not financially efficient. But those are the kind – you know, when you when you start to look at data on a place-based uh, basis, particularly taxpayer money, that's when you start to see those what I call arbitrages, those opportunities to save money for taxpayers that in fact enhance – the you know the incomes and the equity values in that place, and you give small business the ability to compete in that way against big business, and big business is going to lose a lot of business. Yeah, but they're sending those jobs. Uh, they're sending those jobs overseas for their own reasons. Right. They're not trying to help communities. Right. I mean, there's a bigger reason why they're doing that. Well, right? in that in that case, I would say they're trying to control the food system. So, the you know, if you drive across Tennessee, you see tremendous amounts of beautiful land lying fallow. And meantime, we're shipping in a billion dollars of food a year from, uh, you know, including hundreds of millions from Latin America. And and that is facilitating the um, industrialization of agriculture globally. And so they want to use federal money to sort of seed and kickstart that process. And it's funny because oftentimes you'll hear uh, someone say, oh, well, big business can do it cheaper. Well, no, no, no. When you look at the entire ecosystem of that thing. So if we take food and we look at what we're spending on the people who are not working or the people who are getting sick because they're not eating fresh food and, you know, you go ecosystem-wide, what you realize is the the agricultural system can do this one process faster, cheaper, but when you look at the whole ecosystem it's not saving money at all. It's creating a very dysfunctional system that gives these players control, but it's not it's not economically healthy and there's a much better system. Oh well of course. Right. No, but it gives it, it puts control into certain hands. Right. right. Exactly. Right. Well what happened to you at Hamilton Securities? I know Well, had... I'm still asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was we had our offices seized and all of our software literally taken. They wouldn't give it back. It took six years to get it back. And when and that we, in, that included this community wizard. Yeah, as when well. we finally got it back, the most valuable pieces had disappeared forever. It was gone. And um, so so they seized. I started litigating. Um, well, the litigation started in '96, but I first filed my lawsuits in '98. And there were twelve pieces of litigation that went from '96 to 2006. So ten years. And interspersed with a variety of smear campaigns and very serious physical harassment that got unbelievably serious. And it was one of those things, Bonnie. They tried to they tried to do a fishing expedition to find something that they could. You know, they accused us of all sorts of wrongdoing, and then they went on a fishing expedition trying to find a parking ticket to prove it. And you're you're talking about the government went after your company. Yeah, right? the Department of Justice, and, and so and it's a long shaggy dog story, and I should just say. Um, I wrote a story that tells a lot of it and then puts up hundreds, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of legal documentation. So if you want to know the whole story, have at it. Um, it's called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. And it's about this two-tier system and how it's engineered. And I use the case study of a prison company that was financed by my old firm on Wall Street, Dylan Reed. So it's Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. And the URL is uh, dunwalkie.com, D-U-N-W-A-L-K-E.com. And if you go into the resource section, it was when I wrote this 
story, Bonnie. I, I wanted a case study that would really help people who are not financial people to go into the inner workings of the financial system and see how Wall Street and Washington rig these deals. You know, how does what's the financial engineering that allows all this incredible sort of manipulation and financial coup d'etat to take place? So I put a resource center that documents every part of the story. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The resource center is much, much longer than the – it's really an online book. Um, so if you want the documentation, go under under organizations, under Hamilton Securities. There's thousands of pages of the litigation and explanation. So I don't want to tell the whole Shaggy Dirk story. But essentially what happened was they wanted to have a housing bubble. And you couldn't have a housing bubble if the honest people were in charge of HUD. And so you had to kind of get the honest people out and we were the lead contractor for some very fine government officials, and and they needed us gone. So what they did was they had a phony baloney scam. So we were accused of wrongdoing, um, and and they went on a fishing expedition and couldn't find anything. So they tried to falsify evidence, and I caught them and was able to die. It's all up there on the website. Was able to document the falsifying evidence. And so that stopped that. And then what happened was, that was sort of 99, they came to us and said, we'll settle because we've tried to frame you and we can't, we can't find anything wrong. And I got, I sort of got my back up, which is funny because I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I said, you know something? No, I'm not going to settle. You have to come into court and, and produce evidence of wrongdoing because I have to prove that it's an empty suit. Well, that that's when it got really ugly because the litigation went on till 2003. Um, it came from 12 pieces of litigation down to three. And and I won the very big one in 2003. <laughs> that's when the poisonings got really bad <laughs> because then the government was in a – you know, they had no way out. They had no face save. They had no excuse. What was this all about? If there was never any evidence of wrongdoing, why had they spent tens of millions of dollars – and made so much noise, what was this all about? Well, of course, it was about, you know, you can't you can't run a housing bubble with a kind of collateral fraud in it with someone like me saying what I was saying. So let, let me, I'll finish this and let me come back to the collateral fraud because that's the important takeaway from what happened to Hamilton. Um, so we won the big case in 2003 um, and then went back into the, there were sort of two courts involved and went back into the other court and and battled that out since 2004 and then went to settlement in 2006. And one of the reasons I agreed to settle was having gone through the first process in all the courts, I had proved that they had no evidence. It was really funny. One of my attorneys just couldn't believe that they had nothing, that it was an empty suit. And I kept saying, it's empty, it's empty, it's empty. And we went into the court in 2004, um, and the judge kept postponing the night before. He kept postponing because he kept hoping we'd settle. I kept saying, no, I won't settle. So we get into court, and, uh, and there's nothing. They have no evidence. They have nothing. I'm speaking with entrepreneur and investment advisor Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show... Unpacking Mr. Global, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, you know, what happened, Bonnie, was when you have these kind of fights, there's what you're fighting about really, and then, you know, then there's the pretense that's used to play the game. So what we were litigating about was the pretense. The fight was about something else. And it was interesting. One of the things I finally realized was 
um, that the only way I could I could really stop it in the 90s was to launch a website with all the documentation. And the major lawsuit against us had been brought under seal, and we were not allowed to see it, and we were not allowed to know who was accusing us of anything. But they would always leak to the press. So I had to address the allegations, but I could never force them into court because I couldn't even see them. So this went on for years and years and years and years. And finally, what I did is I launched the website against my attorney's advice, and the ketam was unsealed in a week. So then the investigation kept going on and on and on. So I finally got um, wonderful reporter Paul Rodriguez wrote a, a story in Insight Magazine, got the investigation started. You know, and so one of the things I discovered was there was no point in fi- – you know, I had to address the specifics of the litigation I was dealing with, but I had to attack them on the real issues. So let me give you an example. When when Paul wrote the story, it came up on Friday. On Saturday, WorldNet Daily picked it up. And on Tuesday, the HUD inspector general was fired, who was one of the lead enforcers coming after me. Insight Magazine had written a story about all the money that was going missing in the federal government, including HUD. There was massive amounts of money just disappearing out the back door through HUD. And um, the the reporter writing the story and I met the following week – and HUD's new financial statements had just come out. And I spent, I spent, I don't know, 10 hours walking through them with a reporter and helping them design specific questions to ask about what was going on financially at HUD. Now, you would have had to be a very significant insider at HUD to be able to, you know, sort of unpack the information and develop these questions. The reporter faxed in those questions at 12.30 in the afternoon to the HUD IG's office. At 4.30 in the afternoon, my attorneys got a fax saying the investigation of me was over. So I was attacking them not on, you know, the little game we were playing. I was attacking them on the fact that if you look at what was happening financially, billions of dollars was being stolen out of the back door at HUD. And that's why they wanted the clean team out. So then as soon as you attacked them on the real political issues, then it stopped. Well, it changed. You know, that piece of it stopped. Um, I still had to go to court. And I'll tell you, <laughs> I used to get into this dance because, um, you know, if you if you look at the black budget being financed out of HUD, one of my theories was it was really being managed from the National Security Council. And, uh, you know, so I started to get involved for a variety of reasons, not just this and 9-11. And Kyle Hentz from 9-11 would invite me to speak on 9-11 in Washington. And every time I made an appointment to speak, the judge would announce a hearing at that time. And it was really funny. And I couldn't, you know, of course, I couldn't talk to my attorneys about this. They just didn't want to believe there was any connection. So finally, uh, one day I said to Kyle, Kyle called me and, um, and all the families were coming to the National Press Conference for a, a, a conference and um, so I agreed that I would speak. And then, sure enough, our judge announced a hearing um, that afternoon at like 1.30. So I called Colin. I said, can I go on first? Because if I have a car waiting and I go on first, I can make it across town. And <laughs> so um, Kyle let me go on first. And, you know, all the cameras were there. We had all the big major media. I jumped in a cab, got over, walked into court, sat down, and the judge walked in. He was so angry. He was like, <laughs> And that's when I said, 
This National Security Council thing is probably true. <laughs> you know, I remember back in the early days, after 9-11, the unanswered questions that yeah, you that's, were part of. Right. That's what you're talking yeah. about. I remember that. Right. It was a very fascinating story because I... When I first got involved in what what happened to me is in 1997, I said, look, I, you know, I would not be, I'm in a political mess. And the reason I'm in a political mess was because I didn't see the game around me. So I need to look at all the covert money flowing in and out of HUD. And I need to understand, you know, what's really going on. And, um, and so that got me into talking and learning from a lot of people who were trying to research and understand the corruption. And one of the things I discovered was, um, you know, that they were really thinking too small. First of all, they were, they'd get a little piece of information and they'd try and hoard it. So they weren't sharing information, collaborating. But the second thing was that they were trying to answer uh, you know, they they'd get a little piece of information about something where they didn't see the whole picture. And they try to answer what was happening instead of asking questions, because you know the worst thing you can do in, is is diagnose, for example, you know never operate until you know what the di- you know what's really going on. Right. So I really felt we needed a new way of collaborating, and we needed a way of keeping something open and not bringing certainty until we really had knowledge or evidence. Uh, one of the wonderful researchers on nine eleven, I think it, somebody X. Do you remember him? He was a Canadian who um, published a series of articles in Scoop Media, but he came up with this sort of idea of unanswered questions. And I said, that's it. That's what we need to do. We need to just – we do not have the power to create evidence in a court of law because we're not the government. We don't have subpoena powers. But what we can do as citizens is we can ask questions. And so Tom Flacco – I'd known Tom through the the suppression of the precious metals market and that group – and he had come to our press conference at the National Press Club, and that's when we decided, okay, let's do the same thing. And because I had been an assistant secretary of housing, that gave us the entree to have a, you know, something at the National Press Club. And so we did, and it was very, very successful because before, before the architects and scientists really built up a formidable book of analysis, you know, you needed a time when people could say, I don't know, but something's wrong and ask questions. And I think as that happened, and it was very collaborative, it was very global, it just kept the space open, and it kept it alive. And then over time, people who had real, real powerful expertise came in and took it over. And I think that's when it really went. Well, what did you want to finish up saying about collateral fraud? Collateral fraud is uh, as follows. Let's say I have a house. Let's say the house is worth $100,000. And uh, let's say the person in the house can afford to support an $80,000 mortgage. If I lend them a $100,000 mortgage, that's predatory lending or fraudulent inducement or something like that. Because they can't afford to pay. Because they can't afford to, yeah. to pay 100000 And you know it. It's, it's fraudulent inducement because you as the lender know they can't afford well, it, Well, right? it's only fraudulent inducement if they don't know. So let's say... They're a software developer in an area where uh, I know as a, as a financial institution, I'm financing those jobs moving abroad, but they don't know it. That's fraudulent inducement. But the person you're lending to can't know right. this. I My see. failure to disclose to them something about their financial system that I know that they don't know, that's fraudulent yes. inducement. That's okay. my understanding. Yeah. Okay, collateral fraud is 
is while I'm at it, if I create nine other mortgages on that home, don't tell them, but put it into a mortgage-backed securities pool, which I layer with derivatives on top. Okay, so now I've got one home and 10 mortgages. Now, how do you get the 10 mortgages? Uh, I just create the paper. Oh, I see. Yeah. I just, they're fraudulent. Yeah, right. Now, the question is, how do I keep paying the debt service on the nine mortgages? Right. And we used to see these communities, it used to happen a lot in Chicago, where you'd you'd see one house default five times a year. And you'd think, how can a house default five (laughs) times a year? And what you realize is they were churning those houses, I think, to generate the debt service to keep the mortgage debt service paid on the pools full of fraudulent mortgages. So so I think what happened was Well now wait a minute. When you say they were churning the houses to to, to raise the money to, to, to service the debt, mm-hmm. how were they churning them? What do you mean? They were loaning them out to more people? So let's say I um I I bring drugs into a community. Yeah. Okay. And um so now I've got a hundred thousand dollars of drug profits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I need to launder it because it's not clean. Right. So I buy a real estate property yeah. for 100000 Or let's say I buy it for 80000 and I do some slapdash rehab for $20,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've got $100,000 in it. Mm-hmm. I turn around and sell it to a straw buyer. I get a phony bologna appraisal, and I sell it to a straw buyer for 200000 Okay, so now I've got 200000 and it's been washed by the sale. So it's clean. Okay. So my money's laundered. I've doubled my money. I have to pay a couple bribes, but let's say I've got 180. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a quick profit. Um, You default. The straw buyer defaults immediately on the mortgage. It goes back into the FHA fund. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now the FHA fund owns the foreclosed property. I take 80,000 from my 180 and I buy the property again. And I keep doing it. And Mm -hmm. I can generate significant profits. Let's say I do it five times. And let's say I can generate four hundred dollars to $500,000 in pure profit. I'm just pulling money out the back door of the fund. You'd make a good criminal. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. One guy uh, who used to do Iran-Contra frauds uh, swore to me that Oliver North used to say that HUD was the candy store of covert revenues. <laughs> and it's funny because what happened was my lawyers got me to – record a history of my chronology, all the sort of problems I had dealing in the the Bush administration. And after I recorded it, I listened to it. And then uh, through the process of doing the research on the litigation, I started to meet all sorts of people from the intelligence agencies who'd done that kind of fraud. And they would explain to me how the different frauds worked. And then I would go back and look at what it – and I was like, oh, that's what that was about. Oh, oh. that's what that was about. Oh, that's what – you know, finally, it all made sense. You know, until then, I felt like I was living in a puzzle palace. So I took a lot of the fraud back and, un, you know, sort of compared it and unpacked it. But um, my guess, Bonnie, is, uh, you know, during the 80s, we had a huge amount of fraud in the housing bubble in the 80s. And I was part of cleaning it up in 89 and 90, including the fraud at HUD. And I think what happened in the 90s is, is given securitization and then derivatives on top of it, I think the collateral fraud has been so enormous that you literally can't mark to market because it's too much. Right. And we're seeing a variety of things being done very surreptitiously and with the bailouts. Because think about it. When the bailouts happened, 
$8 trillion would have paid off all the residential mortgages in the country. Is that right? $8 right. trillion. So, so, so the bailouts were $12 trillion. <laughs> right. They were 150% of all outstanding mortgages or supposed to be. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons you saw bailouts so much greater was because of the collateral fraud and derivatives. And you know all this – you know, one of the things I always tell somebody who's negotiating on a foreclosure is demand to see the note. Yes. You know, and in many cases, you find these cases where people can't get the note. And I think one of the reasons is because there's not one note, there's 10 notes. <laughs> and and the system has so much fraud behind. I think that's one of the reasons they created the MERS system. So you didn't have to go through the local courthouse. You could go through the local courthouse on one, but then you could do the rest of it behind MERS. And and, and that's a computer system, right? Right. It's, yeah. a, it's a national computer system. Um and it's funny because, you know, I started to tell people this in 1998 and told them all the way through to 2008. You know, it's now 2011 and they're still trying to grapple with it. And that is, you know, if if outstanding mortgages are $8 trillion, it wouldn't surprise me if there's another $2 trillion of collateral fraud or more um, because the system got that completely out of hand and out of control. Or I shouldn't say it got out of hand and out of control. It got that busy financing things that have nothing to do with the law or the official story as we know it. I don't, you know, in, in one sense, I don't think it was out of control. I think it was doing what it was supposed to do. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Catherine Austin Fitz. Today's show has been Unpacking Mr. Global. Part 1. Catherine Austin Fitz has been an investment banker, a government official, an entrepreneur, and an investment advisor. She was a managing director and member of the board of Wall Street firm Dylan Reed and Company Incorporated, assistant secretary of housing and federal housing commissioner in the first Bush administration, president of the Hamilton Securities Group, investment bank and financial software developer, and is currently managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. Catherine's experiences on Wall Street and in Washington, D.C. are chronicled in Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. Visit her website at www.solari.com. That's S-O-L-A-R-I dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo. And a new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all...